This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN 89.5 FM, Columbia. Good morning to you, or good day to you, wherever you might be as you listen to this program. This is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN, 89.5 FM, Columbia. And uh, we're mid-Missouri source for in-depth news, diverse talk, music of the world. It's more than radio. It's your community radio, listener-sponsored community radio, your imagination station, KOPN, 89.5 FM, and you're listening to it right now. 
Radio Orbit, we come to you every Monday night from 11 p.m. until 2 a.m. in the morning, talking about the strange and the mysterious and the weird and wacky and all kinds of interesting things every week. And tonight, no different. I'm really excited about the show tonight. Uh, my guest is Jay Widener, the uh, author of A Monument to the End of Time, among other things. Uh, and we'll get into a little bit more about what Jay is about uh, in a little while. But first, a uh, quick thanks to Debbie. Wonderful show again, as always, on Free Range Radio Theater. Jason and Kelvin before that. Monday night's always cool on the Mighty Fine 89, as uh, my favorite professor puts it. All right, thanks uh, for the emails. Thanks to everybody listening over the web. We're going to do space weather in just a bit here, but first I want to give out some contact information, and uh, we'll talk about upcoming guests, what's going on over the next couple of weeks here. Uh, the email address, orbitradio at AOL.com, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O at AOL.com. Uh, if you have questions, comments, concerns, ideas for future programs, any of that stuff, uh, feel free to send me an email at orbitradio at AOL.com. I appreciate all the stuff that you guys send and uh, take it to heart and try to incorporate that stuff into future programs. So don't be afraid to send a note if uh, you've got something to say, all right? Okay, also uh, the um, the website, www.radioorbit.com. That's R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T.com. Just one O in the middle there. And the phone number here at the station in the studio is... Uh, Five seven three eight seven four five six seven six. If you want to give me a buzz in between uh, uh, when we're taking a break, uh, you're more than welcome to do that. And if you're outside of the five seven three area code, it's one eight hundred eight nine five five six seven six. That's one eight hundred eight nine five K O P N. All right. Okay. Um, tonight, as I said, Jay Widener. Uh, he is uh, an historian, an expert on ancient history, ancient mystery, Gnosticism, alchemy. And in particular tonight, we're going to be talking about the great cyclic cross of Andai. And Andai, or Hende, as you may hear us uh, refer to it uh, throughout the night, is a small town in the south of France uh, where a stone monument, a cross, was erected some three or four hundred years ago. And uh, up until Jay uh, rolled around, other than... Uh, a few initiates that knew that there was something special about this particular monument. Uh, Jay has sort of brought it out into the light of day. And we're going to be talking about uh, uh, his research and what he thinks the cross means and how it ties into uh, some of the things that I mentioned before, Gnosticism, alchemy, and quite frankly, the end of time, as we know it at least. So uh, that's coming up tonight, so stick around. It's going to be a great show. Jay will be on the air here uh, live from Seattle home of uh, Kent Stedman, actually. I'm trying to hook uh, Kent and uh, Jay up because they're both wonderful researchers with a lot of knowledge, and I'm sure that they could really help each other uh, in, their own, uh, in their own way. At any rate, uh, in about 45 minutes, Jay Widener, live from Seattle, okay? All right, uh, next week, Michael Horn. I mentioned this before, but uh, the Billy Meyer story, if you're interested in UFOs and extraterrestrials and the like, uh, the Billy Meyer story is sort of the quintessential UFO story that's been around since the early days, back in the late 60s and the early 70s, and uh, continuing now to this day, and still a controversial subject and uh, a topic that 
uh, still brings about great debate in in scientific and uh, uh, in the so so-called UFO uh, community. So Michael Horn will be on next week talking with us about Billy Meyer and the Billy Meyer story. Michael Horn has been involved in the Billy Meyer story for about 25 of those years. So a good chunk of uh, of the story he's familiar with. Uh, personally, through experience, and that's what we like to talk about in this program: people that have experience with things. So, at any rate, that should be a fun pro, uh, a fun program next weekend. Michael Horn talking about Billy Meyer. Okay, uh, July 25th, the following weekend. Now, I had planned on doing this party uh, for the one-year anniversary of the show, and I'm still going to do it, uh, but I had to schedule a guest for the 25th because it was the only night that I could get him. And his name is Nassim Haramine. And I've been trying to get Nassim on the show for a while, and we've had difficulty with scheduling. And this was an opportunity to just jump on it, and so I did. And Nassim's going to be on the show on the 25th of July. And the reason that I'm so excited about this is because uh, he, well, first of all, he runs a, a website called The Resonance Project. And... He is, however, a theoretical physicist, and um, along with another physicist whose name is uh, um, Dr. Rauscher, they have just announced uh, the uh, acceptance for publication of Nassim and Dr. Rauscher's paper called The Origin of Spin, A Consideration of Torque and Coriolis Forces in Einstein Field Equations and Grand Unification Theory. And that may sound like a mouthful, but the bottom line is uh, it's going to be in the peer-reviewed Noetic Journal, and it's a groundbreaking paper that proposes a solution to the the long-sought quest for a unified field theory. And it means a tremendous amount, uh, possibly, uh, to our understanding of physics as we know it. And it could change a whole lot of things, the implications of what uh, Dr. Rauscher and uh, Nassim have uh, uh, have brought to light here. So anyway, Nassim Haramein will be live with us from Hawaii uh, on the 25th of July. And we're going to do our little party on the following week, August 1st. So hopefully this is enough notice for anybody out there who was uh, hoping to come down here to the station on uh, on the 25th. Well... Hopefully you can still make it the following week. It'll be August 1st, a Monday. We're going to have live music down here. We'll sort of keep the microphone open. I'll be recording the whole thing, and I'm going to let people uh, actually put the headphones on and play some music, and uh, you can talk for a few minutes or whatever, and we'll make comments about the show, and we'll just have a good time. So anyway, that's all coming up uh, in just a few weeks. So August 1st, mark that on your calendar, 11 o'clock, right down here at 915 East Broadway downtown columbia we're going to do it up all right uh the following week probably nick cook uh most likely nick cook uh and if you remember nick has been on the program before he is a uh uh the former editor of jane's defense weekly for 15 years he was the uh, aviation and aerospace editor for jane's and he is um very well versed in uh, areas of propulsion and uh, aerospace technology and he wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Hunt for Zero Point and The Hunt for Zero Point was about uh, the trail of anti-gravity technology that Nick has been 
following for the last 10 or 12 years now, and he has a follow-up book to that coming up. And he's a tremendous guy, uh, spends most of his time in London, is an Englishman, uh, but uh, he's traveled around the world sort of chasing down these um, uh, this research about anti-gravity and other exotic energy and propulsion technologies. So we're going to have Nick on the air. It's not really tied down yet, but it'll, it'll either be August 8th um, or the 22nd. I think I'm going to be out of town on the 15th. So at any rate, uh, some good stuff coming up. John Lash still coming up uh, in the next few months, and uh, i got a whole list of other people that I'm working on, and uh, just a matter of uh, timing and scheduling. And of course, uh, Alex Gray and his wife, Allison, uh, two of the most uh, influential spiritual artists of our time and recognized as such uh, will be live from New York City uh, coming up on September 5th and that is going to be a show that uh, boy I sure hope um, I hope anybody out there who's interested in any of the topics that we talk about on this show listen to the show with Alex Gray because he is tremendously articulate he is a brilliant brilliant guy his wife is an amazing woman Allison is something else and they will both astound you not only with their visual art but with their words as well and I really look forward to uh, to talking with them in just uh, just a few weeks okay so that's what's going on and uh, we'll come back and do space weather in a few minutes uh, there's so many things to talk about unfortunately we can't get to them all uh, there have been tremendous uh, earthquake activity uh, all around the Ring of Fire, um, the, the the bombings in London, of course, which I have a few things to say about. I don't usually talk about uh, political stuff, but uh, just uh, to get this out of the way, I just found it interesting that uh, with regard to the London bombings that took place a couple of days ago, there are two or three particular stories that I'm just going to mention real fast. The first one is that uh, there were, quote-unquote, exercises being carried out that morning at the same exact time uh, for the exact same scenario that actually took place uh, that was being uh, the exercises were being undertaken by a private security firm that's involved with the intelligence community uh, there in the United Kingdom and that was uh, something that is eerily reminiscent of what took place on September 11th 2001 in this country uh, for those of you who are not familiar, there were NRO and CIA operations underway on the morning of 9-11 that mirrored identically the uh, events that took place. And uh, the same thing happened in London. There were exercises that were going on that, mo that morning. It was a very quietly released story, but uh, came out just yesterday. The other thing is that the cameras on the bus weren't working. The bus that exploded uh, had uh, four uh, closed caption cameras. And in another relatively obscure story, we find out that those cameras were not operating uh, on the morning of the 7th. Again, eerily familiar uh, with the camera situation um, in uh, New York City, actually at the Pentagon on September 11th. Uh, the third story is that uh, Tony Blair already yesterday um, has rejected requests by conservative members of his parliament to open up uh, an investigation, uh, a government investigation into the bombings. 
So those three stories, and there are some other ones that are interesting, but those three alone uh, all mirror exactly what happened here on September 11, 2001, and I think that that is of note. Take it as you like it. Make of it what you will. Okay? Um, unprecedented warming in Canada. Environmental catastrophe everywhere right now. UFOs flying wild over South America. Hurricane geometry again. Uh, the eye of Hurricane Dennis. Uh, we observed and uh, saved the uh, satellite imagery of Hurricane Dennis as it approached Florida and the Gulf Coast a couple of days ago. And again, as we saw with Isabel and with Charlie and with Jean, uh, we saw pentagonal geometry showing up inside the eye of a 150-mile-an-hour vortex. All right? And this is an intelligence test, uh, but uh, those sort of angular geometries do not show up in nature, uh, particularly in spinning vortices. So uh, if you're interested in that, you can go down to cyberspaceorbit.com. Kent, of course, always has that imagery up and uh, pictures uh, worth a thousand words. So uh, jump onto my site if you like at radioorbit.com, and you can always get over to Kent's from, uh, from my site, but uh, you can always get to him directly through www.cyberspaceorbit.com. Okay? All right, so obviously lots and lots going on. Uh, the shuttle launch coming up on Wednesday. Um, a new feature from Google called Google Earth where you can actually uh, see satellite photos of pretty much anywhere on the planet and then zoom right in on local areas, even look at the top of your own house, uh, perhaps. And um, Anyway, lots and lots in the news, but we don't have a whole lot of time to talk. Play a little bit of music and uh, come back, do space weather, a couple stories, and then we'll get things going at the top of the hour with Jay Widener the author of A Monument to the End of Time, Fulcanelli, Alchemy, and the Great Cross of Andai. And we're going to be talking about all kinds of this stuff tonight. Jay is a tremendously intelligent guy. Uh, lots and lots of cool stuff to talk about. Uh, we're going to be talking about the cathedrals, the Gothic cathedrals of Europe. We're going to be talking about alchemy, early Christian traditions of Gnostic Christianity, um, some of the secret societies that evolved out of French occultism, during those times and uh, are alive today. Anyway, lots of stuff to talk to uh, talk about with Jay, and uh, so stick around. That's all coming up. In the meantime, uh, here's a little bit of music to get things going and kick back, relax. We're going to have a good time tonight, and I've got some interesting stories uh, to talk about uh, before we get to Jay. All right, so back in a few minutes. This is Sun Kill Moon, and you're also listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. This is Mike Hagan. I'll be back in just a few to chat with you some more.
All right. Uh, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN, Columbia, 89.5 FM. That was Sun Kill Moon, one of my favorite new bands. Hope you guys like that. Okay. Uh, space weather. Aurora Watch. Keep your eyes out to the north. Maybe not making it all the way down here to Missouri, but uh, if you're listening to this over the web and if you're in the northern uh, latitudes, the next few days should be pretty amazing up there. There was a big coronal mass ejection that was tossed out into space by the sun from a big giant sunspot area that we talked about last week or a couple weeks ago at least, uh, number 786, and uh, that happened just yesterday on the 10th. There's actually a really cool movie of it if you want to watch it and see it actually happen in real time. Well, now it's not real time, but you can see it happen as it happened if you go over to spaceweather.com and they record all that stuff. And you can watch it with your own eyes, and it's pretty impressive, actually. So at any rate, a uh, big old flare and accompanying coronal mass ejection on the 10th is now on its way to planet Earth. And uh, if you're up there in the high latitudes... And you're a sky watcher. Keep your eyes up and uh, alert for auroras over the next couple of nights. Tonight, tomorrow, and uh, probably even on the 13th, okay? So uh, the sun continues to be tremendously active, even though we are told uh, that we are supposed to be in solar minimum. And, of course, solar minimum... Uh, it's really been interesting because solar maximum was supposed to occur right around uh, the year 2000, the midpoint of 2000 into 2001. It's an 11-year cycle, plus or minus, uh, this uh, solar cycle that they talk about. At any rate, uh, halfway through the cycle is what we call solar minimum, and we're now about halfway through the cycle. And at maximum, uh, which was uh, back again, like I say, uh, in mid-2000, the level of activity, relatively speaking, was uh, not much higher than it is today. And for the last five years, it has remained very active. And in fact, it doesn't even look like there was a peak uh, in 2000 or 2001. Uh, if anything, the peak to me looks like it was in October of 2003. Uh, at any rate, uh, the sun has been pretty unpredictable and again, over the last few days, uh, showing us that uh, solar minimum is uh, well I guess it's something to talk about but it certainly doesn't appear in reality in observation uh, that that's where we are right now so so we'll keep our eye on the sun as we always do and talk about it again next week and I'll let you know if uh, if anything interesting happens between now and then okay all right um, if you go outside in the morning uh, and if you have over the last few days if you get up early, just before sunrise, or even right around sunrise, uh, it's best if it's before sunrise, but uh, Mars will be easily uh, viewable with the unaided eye. Mars will it'll, it'll look like a bright star. It'll have sort of a red tinge to it, uh, but if you look to the east, uh, around sunrise, you'll be able to see Mars very, very brightly in the low sky, and uh, that polar cap is... Uh, of Mars is now angled to the sun in such a way that it's really f reflecting a lot of light. And so it's very bright right now in the mornings. And uh, if you have a small telescope even, and you uh, take a look at Mars 
uh, over the next few days in the morning, you'll get a great view of, uh, of that planet. Okay? As far as uh, near-Earth asteroids, uh, there's nothing getting close uh, to us that we're aware of. As always, there are rocks flying around that we're not aware of. And um, those are the ones that uh, there's no reason to talk about them because you don't know where they are. But, in, but as far as the ones that we know about, nothing to worry about, okay? So uh, don't, uh, don't lose any sleep over an asteroid hitting the planet. And, well, what time is it? It's 1130 I'm going to call Jay in just a few minutes here, but let me read a couple stories, I guess. We'll do that, and we'll put on some music, get Jay on the phone, and then uh, and then we'll do a little setup and uh, bring him on at the top of the hour, okay? All right, here is a, uh, a great story that just really caught my eye. It's short and sweet, but it's sort of a uh, an appropriate story for the way that I see uh, politics and uh, pop culture in general right now in our country in particular of course it's the only one that I'm really familiar with right now I haven't been out of the country for a few years so I can only I can only tell you what I what I observe uh, in this country but this story really uh, really stuck to me and here it is. This is from uh, Istanbul, Turkey. It says, Hundreds of sheep follow leader off cliff. This is from Reuters uh, from this morning at 9.11 a.m. Hundreds of sheep followed their leader off a cliff in eastern Turkey, plunging to their deaths this week while shepherds looked on in dismay. 400 sheep fell 15 yards to their deaths in a ravine in Van province near Iran, but broke the fall of another 1,100 animals who survived, the newspaper reports said Friday. Shepherds from Ikizir village neglected the flock while eating breakfast, leaving the sheep to roam free, the Daily News said. The loss to local farmers was estimated at 100,000 new lira uh, that's about $74,000. So, at any rate, uh, a bunch of uh, sheep followed the head sheep off a cliff. All right? So, extend the metaphor. All right, here's one more story that I'll mention uh, before we play a little music and I'll get Jay on the phone. This uh, is a story about Ray Kurzweil. And if you remember... Um, his partner, Terry Grossman, Dr. Terry Grossman, was on the program just a few weeks ago. Actually, a couple months ago now, I guess. Time flies. But anyway, Dr. Terry Grossman was on Orbit, um, and we talked about his book with Ray called uh, Fantastic Voyage, Live Long Enough to Live Forever. And they're in the news again here recently in a story that was picked up uh, all around the world. And this particular version is from The Guardian, London, uh, from uh, the 8th of July, last Friday. And I'll read a little bit of it for, uh, for you here, and we'll talk a little bit about it uh, afterwards. But most people know Ray Kurzweil as an information technology wizard. Not only did he invent the CCD flatbed scanner, print-to-speech software for the blind, 
and Omnifont optical character recognition, but he also created the first commercially marketed large vocabulary speech recognition software. As if that wasn't enough, he's also known for his IT predictions. Uh, MIT's Marvin Minsky described Kurzweil as a leading futurist of our time. But his latest book is about health and longevity. Kurzweil co-authored Fantastic Voyage, Live Long Enough to Live Forever with Terry Grossman, founder and medical director of the Frontier Medical Institute, uh, which is, of course, in Denver. And like I say, we talked to Terry just a couple months ago, but it's a longevity clinic that he put together uh, back in the early 90s. All right, the book purports to make scientific case uh, to make the scientific case that immortality is within our grasp thanks to modern technology and that it can be reached via three so-called bridges. And for those of you who missed the program, I'm going to give you it in a nutshell right here. All right? The first bridge relies on the latest medical research into aging and how to counteract the process of getting older with nutritionals. This means food and food supplementals. Okay? Um, the second bridge is about bioengineering and how we will soon be able to grow a new heart uh, in the body or be vaccinated, for example, against diseases such as cancer. The third bridge is about the benefits of technology such as nanotechnology, things like nanobots, uh, strong artificial intelligence, and full immersion virtual reality of the kind experienced in the Hollywood movie The Matrix. Health and technology, it turns out, have been, t uh, have been two passions of uh, Ray Kurzweil for some time. At the age of 35, he was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and found that the necessary insulin injections made him gain weight and uh, uh, made his health problems worse. Being a restless inventor, Kurzweil wasn't about to sit around and let the condition get the better of him. I read all the scientific literature that came up and came up with my own approach, he says. I've been free of any indication of diabetes ever since. For the first time, we are actually understanding these diseases and aging processes as information processes, he says. When we cross the third bridge, nanobots will replace our, dig our digestive systems. We will dispense with our heart, and yeah, you guessed it, replace it with nanobots that shuttle oxygen and carbon dioxide around our bodies. In Ray Kurzweil's future, we will be able to upgrade our bodies over the Internet, downloading new programs to make us fitter, stronger, and healthier. All right, so this is the sort of stuff that, uh, that Ray is talking about and that we talked about with Terry Grossman on the air just a couple months ago. But this stuff is real and it's coming, the caveat being we have to hold the planet together. Uh, and it may be out of our grasp to hold the planet together as, uh, as we hear uh, tonight as we talk to Jay Widener. Uh, but at any rate, very interesting things are happening, and um, it is very well worth it uh, to keep your eyes and ears open about these things because uh, all of them are simply a matter of information, just as Ray has realized. And uh, uh, the information is out there, but it's not always readily available. Sometimes you have to search it out. It will not always come to you spoon-fed uh, from... Uh, uh, from the guys at CNN or Fox or MSNBC or ABC, CBS, NBC, any of them. Okay? All right, uh, words of wisdom. 
And uh, let's play a little bit more music here. We'll come back in just a few minutes. I've got a couple more stories to set up the show tonight, but we'll have uh, Jay Widener on the air in just about 20 minutes here. And we'll be talking about uh, Fulcanelli, the enigmatic f- uh, figure of Fulcanelli. Who was he? What did he do? And uh, what did he know about this cross at Andai, France? And uh, we'll be talking about alchemy and uh, lots of other interesting things tonight. So stick around. In the meantime, a little bit more music, and we'll come back in just a few. This is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM, and this is Devachka.
sitting there watching as it bleeds. You try your best in the winter light. When it really should be summer night. Is it too late, baby? Too late now.
World Party from Goodbye Jumbo. That's Is It Too Late? We heard Dvachka before that. And this is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. All right, uh, a couple quick stories here, and then we'll get things going with Jay Widener at the top of the hour, author of A Monument to the End of Time, among other things. All right, uh, and I've tried to find a couple stories uh, floating around the news that might be sort of relevant to what we're going to be talking about tonight. And it's sort of an obscure topic, so it wasn't easy, but uh, this is the best I've got for you. Actually, the, 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 the second story that I'm going to read is quite relevant, actually. This first one is sort of uh, uh, maybe just uh, as a historical uh, so, at any rate, uh, this first story says, Who's buried in Charles IV's tomb? And this is from the Prague Daily Monitor. Uh, July 11th, the royal tomb built by Czech king and emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Charles IV, sometime after 1350 for himself and his family, has disclosed some of its secrets, art historian Jana Marakova told journalists on Friday. It contains the remains of coffins, bones, and clothing of church dignitaries who were buried there since the 16th century. She said, Researchers explored the tomb with a video camera, which they inserted through a hole four centimeters wide. Four centimeters, that's two and a half, two, that's about an inch and a half wide. The preparations lasted five years, and the research uh, through, a probe, uh, through the probe only lasted two days. Marakova said, We did not know in what state the tomb would be in. We knew that there was a cavity, but we had no idea whether it was changed or backfilled. The tomb is in a good state. It confirmed the measurements and temperatures uh, by our measurements, and uh, they find not a single reason to open it. Research into St. Vitus Cathedral in March discovered two chambers, a western chamber measuring 2.5 by 6.2 meters and an eastern chamber roughly 3.8 by 4.7 meters. Both chambers were vaulted. Uh, in the eastern chamber, there are wooden coffins, and, uh, which contain skeletons. In the eastern chamber, they also contain uh, nameplates and other ornaments. The western chamber holds uh, cases, but they were not able to confirm uh, what was inside of those cases. Uh, at any rate, uh, according to historians, Charles IV, who died in 1378, built the tomb after his two wives and son had died. At that time, Charles was planning the construction of the new cathedral on the site of the original Romanesque basilica. Uh, Czech monarchs were buried in the old tomb until the 16th century. In 1590, the remains were transferred to a new royal tomb, which was built uh, to the west and now is accessible to visitors. So anyway, uh, some of the cathedrals, and this is one of the, uh, not one of the older uh, cathedrals, but uh, cathedrals still yielding uh, secrets and... Uh, Mysteries at the same time. And speaking of mysteries and secrets, uh, the following story is something that uh, is actually relevant to the conversation that Jay and I are going to be having in a few minutes here. So I'm going to read it pretty much in its entirety. And uh, it simply says, uh, Newton's alchemy manuscript found. And again, this is from The Guardian in London. Sir Isaac Newton, famous for his revolutionary work in mathematics, optics, gravity, and the laws of motion, had a secret hobby. A collection of his notes, thought to have been lost 70 years ago, reveal his passion for alchemy and fruitless attempts to turn lead into gold. 
Uh, now, before I continue, I want, you, I want you to take to heart the tone in which uh, this is written, uh, all right? Because it'll give you an idea of, of, of the way propaganda is used. At any rate, uh, let me continue here. His handwritten notes, and, I, and I'll, point, I'll point out what I'm talking about when I finish reading this, okay? His handwritten notes commenting on the work of other famous famous 17th century alchemists and documenting his own attempts to manufacture precious metals were rediscovered in the vaults of the Royal Society and will go on display for the first time next week at its summer science exhibition. Newton kept hidden his occasional interest in alchemy during his lifetime in part because the making of gold or silver was a felony and had been since the law had passed uh, by Henry IV in 1404. But throughout his career, he and other scientists of the time, many of whom were fellows of the society, carried out extensive research into alchemy. The text is written in English, but it is not easy to work out what Newton is actually saying. Alchemists were notorious for recording their methods and theories in symbolic language or code, so others could not understand it. One excerpt reads, It is therefore no wonder that, in their advice, lay before us the rule of nature, in obtaining the great secret both for medicine and transmutation. And if I may have the liberty of expression, give me leave to assert as my opinion that it is effectual in all the three kingdoms and from every species may be produced when the modus is rightly understood. Only, miter only minerals produce minerals. John Young from the Newton Project said, This is a hugely exciting find for Newton scholars and for historians of science in general. It provides vital evidence about the alchemical authors Newton was reading and the alchemical theories he was investigating in the last decades of the 17th century. The whereabouts of this document had been unknown since 1936, and it was a real thrill to see it preserved in the Royal Society's archives. All right, a wonderful story. Uh, and in fact, uh, Sir Isaac Newton had... Uh, over a million words, I think, uh, written on alchemy. Uh, there was a larger story, actually, that came out about a year ago, and he was uh, extensively involved and interested uh, in the science of alchemy. Now, this is uh, a man who is considered basically the one of the fathers, at least, of, of, uh, of modern physics. And he was a brilliant man there's no question about it so there are some questions here and uh, the first uh, question is this uh, as, as, as I read in the first paragraph of this story uh, it says a collection of his notes thought to have been lost 70 years ago reveal his passion for alchemy and fruitless attempts to turn lead into gold the fact that they use that language fruitless attempts and then go on in the article to explain that they have no idea what he was even talking about. In other words, they, they, they make it clear that, that the alchemists wrote in code and that very few people understood what they were talking about. Um, and they also make a point later in the article of what a, what, what a brilliant scientist he was. So the question is, if one of the fathers of modern physics was deeply interested in this, in fact, Probably and probably more interested in it than he was in the other stuff that he was working on that be, that he became famous for. Uh, why was that? 
Now, the other question that comes to mind really, really, really quickly here, it says, Newton kept hidden his occasional interest in alchemy during his lifetime, in part because the making of gold and silver was a felony and had been since a law was passed by Henry IV in 1404. If it's a felony to make gold or silver, why would you pass a law for something that wasn't... Uh, physically capable of being done. In other words, it was obviously a concern of the elite of the day that people were going to make gold and silver and therefore probably uh, tip over the apple, the apple cart, so to speak. <laughs> but uh, at any rate, uh, lots of contradictions in this story uh, in and of itself, but the bottom line was uh, Sir Isaac Newton very interested in alchemy and uh, there was a good reason for him to be interested in alchemy. And as we're going to find out tonight, alchemy is a little bit more than what we were all taught in grade school and in high school. A little bit more than madmen in basements getting stoned off mercury vapors and fruitlessly trying to turn lead into gold. And when we come back in just a few minutes, we're going to find out just what the heck I'm talking about. All right, my guest in uh, two or three minutes, Jay Widener, the author of a Monument to the End of Time, Fulcanelli Alchemy at the Great Cyclic Cross of Hyundai, or Hendai, as I said earlier. We'll probably interchange those two words tonight. At any rate, wonderfully cool and exciting stuff coming up in just a few minutes. And uh, we'll do it up, okay? One more piece of music. We'll be back with Jay Wyden in just a few minutes. This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia. and angels falling down like a mission and we're halfway there from some old dried up fried forgotten town why won't they let us be ourselves with our potential we could tell the line and show the bastards up with our deep
Right, you are listening to Mike Hagan on Radio Orbit KOPN Columbia, and uh, we're going to get right down to business here. My guest tonight, his name is Jay Widener, and he is an author. He's a filmmaker. He's a scholar on the Hermetic arts and the science of alchemy. He's authored a number of books, or co-authored a number of books. Uh, among them, the Mysteries of the Great Cross of Andai, Alchemy, and the End of Time and also a monument to the end of time with Vincent Bridges that I mentioned uh, earlier. Uh, Jay's also produced and directed uh, some documentary films, among them uh, The Secrets of Alchemy, The Great Cross and the End of Time, which I watched just a couple of nights ago, and we'll uh, be pretty much covering uh, some of the material that's in that, uh, in that DVD tonight, but just a fantastic piece of work. And uh, he's also done some work, and as you'll find out tonight, uh, Jay has, uh, has done some work uh, and his research has included Dr. Paul Laviolette, who, of course, has been on the program here. And uh, Dr. Laviolette's work um, ties in pretty deeply with the work that, uh, that Jay has done. So, anyway, uh, Jay's also produced this particular video uh, for Paul called Earth Under Fire. And, uh, interestingly, he's also done another video called Art Mind with uh, Alex Gray and of course Alex is going to be on the show here uh, in early September on September 5th so uh, again all these lines sort of converging in really interesting ways lately so uh, uh, Jay has um, a new book called Alchemical, Alchemical Cinema A Search for the Spirit in Contemporary Filmmaking uh, that will be published this fall I think um, and he's written lots of uh, articles uh, for magazines and journals over the years he's done some wonderful pieces uh, a great piece that I read a couple years ago called Alchemical Kubrick which talks about uh, the movie uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey and uh, uh, the uh, symbology and some of the deeper meanings in that movie. He's done a similar piece of work uh, with the Lord of the Rings series. And he wrote a real recent piece uh, here called The Golden Age and the End of the World. So anyway, Jay's done a lot of different things over the years. Tonight we're going to be talking about alchemy and uh, the Great Cross. And uh, all of the stuff uh, is available at his website at jwidener.com. That's www.jwidener.com, J-A-Y-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And, of course, you can get uh, right over there from my site. If you go over to radioorbit.com, you'll see all the links right up on the front page there, okay? All right, so uh, without uh, further ado, let's uh, say hello. Jay Widener, thanks very much for being with us tonight on, uh, on Orbit. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure. It's a long time coming, and uh, um, really, uh, really pleased that we finally uh, finally got things worked out here together. By the way, that was uh, that was um, uh, the Shadow of Seattle by Marcy Playground before uh, before Jay got on the air. I want to make sure I mention that. So, <laughs> all right. Well, look, Jay. Um, uh, there's lots to talk about. We've got two hours, and I know how quickly these things go. So, let's. Um, 
uh, give a little bit of background on yourself uh, as much as you'd like, and then um, I'd like to start the story in 1986 uh, at uh, <laughs> at the garage sale because I think it's an amazingly synchronistic beginning uh, that just continues throughout the whole story. So maybe give us a little bit about yourself and then start uh, start in L.A. in '86, maybe. Sure. Um, I. Uh I uh, was living in Los Angeles in 1986. I was uh, a, a young screenwriter trying to uh, break into Hollywood at the time and uh, wrote some fairly horrible horror films and things <laughs> and uh, would spend my weekends perusing around Los Angeles searching for books because I was a book collector and I had thousands, still do have thousands of books. Okay. I found a garage sale where an older guy died, and um, he apparently had lived alone, and someone was selling his book collection, and the man, whoever he was, was an amazing person and had an amazing book collection, and uh, I purchased a, a lot of books that day, around 20 books, of which I still own almost all of them, and um, uh, for a dollar a book, they're all hard copies, uh, hard covers. Um, some of the books ended up being worth hundreds and hundreds of dollars. I didn't know at the time that that was the case. I took them home and uh, began reading through them. One of the first books that I read out of this stack of books was a strange, very strange book called Mystery of the Cathedrals by a man with the single name of Falconelli. I couldn't understand the book. I considered myself a pretty smart guy, and I... Uh, I'd read James Joyce's Ulysses and understood quantum physics and I was a journalist and written uh, many articles and here I was confronted with a book that I honestly could not understand. Hmm. And this really vexed me and bothered me. So I began reading the book over and over. And the book, I thought, was about the art and architecture of Gothic cathedrals, hence its name, Mystery of the Cathedrals. Right, but right. actually, I found out quickly that the book had nothing hardly to do with art and architecture, but it had to do with alchemy. Hmm. And uh, being a fairly reasonable guy, I knew that alchemy was uh, BS and couldn't hmm. possibly be real outside of maybe being a precursor to modern-day chemistry. But as I read the book, I realized that this man with the single name of Fulcanelli was uh, a man of incredibly profound intelligence. Hmm. In fact, still to this day, I'm amazed by the uh, erudition that this man possessed, the uh, incredible logic and reasoning and, and, and quality of thought. And uh, I still read the book. It sits by my bed, and I reread it about every four or five months. <laughs> Some of those odd books, it's a different book every time you read it. Right, right, right. And um, uh, one of the peculiar things that he does in the book is he italicizes certain words. Ends up there's probably about seven or 800 words in the book that are italicized. Okay. And I began pursuing each meaning that he italicized. And what I found was... Later, much later, 15 years later, I realized that, of course, this book was uh, was meant to initiate the reader into a completely different way of thinking. And um, it transformed me. And in the end, I realized that pretty much everything that I'd been taught in college and high school was wrong. 
and uh, that there was a completely different world that existed around us and that there were highly intelligent men and women who were alchemists and they're still around with us today and they have a knowledge that is so profound and so astonishing that um, it really permeates our society it's just that we don't know it for instance NASA uh, the space agency the founders of NASA were uh, interested in alchemy uh, Carl Jung one of the fathers of, of psychiatry was interested in alchemy uh, Leonardo da Vinci of course with the da Vinci code but really one of the greatest artists that ever lived was interested in alchemy and of course the father of modern physics uh, as you were talking about Newton also it was his favorite subject right, Stanley right, Kubrick J.R.R. Right. Tolkien many many artists um, and scientists and philosophers are deeply interested in alchemy and so this book began my career in uh, pursuing this odd science which is really not a science that is about transforming lead into gold although that may very well be able to be uh, something that is true but it's really something much more profound and deep it's about how to transform the human uh, into um, illuminated uh, uh, thought so that we can transform our own bodies into light so to speak huh. and that is really the main secret of alchemy okay so in other words this the, the, as you say the idea of the that, that we were taught the the madman in the basement as i mentioned before stoned on mercury that's a, a at least uh, a, a, a way oversimplification. Well, it's also a, um, a trap. It's a trap set by the alchemists themselves. Ah. If you're really a very greedy person, um, you really could never understand alchemy. So if you were trying to change lead into gold in your basement, and that's all you're really interested in, you're sort of automatically excluded from hmm. the alchemical circles. The, these people were called puffers. They were people who didn't really understand alchemy, and so they would spend all of their time constantly melting lead and trying incantations and different formulas and chemicals and things to try to get the lead to change into gold, and it was like a, uh, a fake-out, so that you, you were, if you did pursue that, that you were automatically eliminated from the upper levels of alchemical schools and okay. alchemical thought. Okay. It should also be said that Tolkienelli, as I found out later, was completely anonymous, and no one knew who he was. In fact, the precursor to the CIA, the OSS, actually spent um, two years, 1946 and 1947, uh, uh, running all around France trying to find the true identity of this odd man and his strange book, and they never did. And that struck me as very yeah. odd also. Yeah. Also, um, the main uh, subject of, of, of my books on alchemy and Fulcanelli is the cross of Hende, or Undai in French, and uh, Hitler actually visited the cross of Hende in 1940, during, right in the middle of World War II. So there, it, it, it's a, a much bigger subject than anyone really realizes but it's a subject that is so obscure and difficult to comprehend for most people that they just it just has been forgotten 
However, I consider one of my main tasks in this life is to uh, uh, make it accessible to people so they can understand that even us in the West have a very profound shamanic tradition that mm-hmm. goes back thousands and thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Well, it's fine to go to um, Peru and take ayahuasca or go to Siberia and, and, and consume mushrooms or something like that. It's, it's, it's encouraging and, and satisfying to know that even, you know, uh, in Europe, going back hundreds and hundreds of years, there's a shamanic, mm. mystical, spiritual tradition, right, right. and it's alchemy. Right. Okay, well, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about the cathedrals real fast. You, you, you uh, of course, the book is called, the book at least that got you uh, set off on this path is called The Mystery of the Cathedrals. And uh, one thing real fast, mention a little bit, if you would, about I don't think people are really familiar with the scale of the projects, you know, that the cathedrals actually were. There were some, I don't know, f- four or five hundred of them built in a in a pretty short period of time, a couple hundred That's years. That's right. Maybe. In fact, yeah, if you did a, um, if uh, someone did about 15 years ago, did a monetary assessment of just Notre Dame in Paris, mm-hmm. it uh, would, would cost today um, $400 billion to build it. <laughs> and um, there were five, almost 500 of these cathedrals built across Europe in a little over 100 years. Right. And uh, the Catholic Church won't cop to paying for it. It's very interesting. Huh. Um, I've traced the receipts back, and the Catholic Church was not the people was not the group, was not the party that was paying for these this incredible construction project. In fact, I had to finally uh, say to myself that it, you know, it's only one group that it could have possibly been, and that would be the Knights Templar. And mm-hmm. uh, I believe, of course, that the Knights Templar discovered something, a, a cache of something in uh, their diggings underneath the Temple Mount in the uh, early 1100s. And I, I believe that that's where our modern science comes from, alchemy, the building of the cathedrals, modern banking, and several other things came from a discovery, including the maps of Columbus that Columbus mm-hmm. used to get to the New World. But uh, the, this this building of the cathedrals was the thing that um, pushed Europe over into the Renaissance and created really our modern world. Most modern historians would agree with that too, by the mm-hmm, way. Mm-hmm. In other words, we, we were living in a time, a thousand years of the Dark Ages, well, 800 years of the Dark Ages, and uh, pretty much people didn't know how to read and write. Uh, there was a world of uh, control by the church and by uh, kings and dukes, and it was a, a, a fiefdoms and, 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 and serfs. And suddenly, out of the blue, um, a, these building projects started. And suddenly, you had to learn geometry, and you had to learn math, and you had to learn how to communicate, and you had to learn how to read and write. And all, and this spread all across Europe, whether it would be in Prague or whether it was in England or France or Germany or Italy. It was everywhere, all going on, all at the same time. And it lifted Europe up out of ignorance and created uh, craft guilds and Freemasonry and many, many things that advanced uh, uh, Europe into being really the leading intellectual center of the world and uh, all the way up into today. And so it was an amazing thing, but Falconelli 
actually tells us that these cathedrals were even more incredible than just a uh, kind of uplifting of the community. They were uh, secret. There was a secret science that was behind the building of the cathedrals. And this secret science was the same exact science that was behind the building of the pyramids or the building of the temples in India. And this science was a hyperdimensional science. It was a science about meta-dimensional states. And um, I believe that Newton, for instance, really did know mm. everything in, about alchemy. It's just that if you try to explain hyperdimensional science, you, you're forced to use words and uh, metaphors and, and analogies that are difficult to understand because there's no way a three-dimensional person can talk about fourth and fifth dimensional space and time without it sounding kind of weird. But I believe that cathedrals, I know, I don't believe, I know that cathedrals are transducers. They take hyper-dimensional energy and space and they transduce it down into three dimensions. And this creates an incredible cohesion uh, in the towns that were built around the cathedrals. And it uh, creates a, a space in the head that allows your imagination to run wild. Mm -hmm. And so the same exact people, and Filippinelli is very clear about this, the same exact science that's behind the ancient building of the pyramids in Egypt is exactly the same exact science as behind the building of the Gothic cathedrals. In fact, the building of the Gothic cathedrals are the largest building project ever on earth outside of the building of the Great Pyramids in Egypt. So it's a, quite an amazing thing, and the fact that it isn't talked about at all, not discussed at all, that it's being given one or two sentences in, in history books mm. and then written off like it isn't important right. is uh, disturbing. And uh, I think it's time for us to realize that we're sitting on a literal gold mine of incredible information. And it's time, to, now that we're nearing the end of time, it's time to have this information not only released, but understood. Right. Well, you know, Jay, uh, you mentioned this this difficulty in explaining uh, these ideas, and I think one of the things that uh, that sort of exacerbates that is this. And, and you bring this up uh, in your video, this idea of the reductionist versus holist. For example, you you made a you made a wonderful statement uh, that said science looks down into matter, and alchemy looks up into spirit. And I thought that was just a beautiful metaphor for what you were trying to say here. And I think the cathedrals appear to me, at least, to be sort of the physical manifestation of that sort of a statement. They are, and I, I, I like to call, I like to put it like this: the three-dimensional world is a horizontal world, and the fourth-dimensional world is a vertical world. Hmm. And so the snake is a is the symbol of the horizontal world. And uh, when the snake goes upright, like in the caduceus, mm. um, it is how it is how the 3D is transformed into the 4D or into the hyperdimensional. The cathedrals are really homages to a vertical 
a vertical dimension, a vertical science. And this vertical science is, um, is how the fourth dimension interacts with the third dimension. Okay. The fourth dimension is literally coming down from above. And one of the things that makes human beings so special and why we are actually one of the most important things in the entire universe is the fact that we walk upright. We receive, we are walking uh, uh, tangentially to this, to these 4D forces which are coming down from above. And so when our spine is straight and when we're walking upright, we're receiving these forces uh, at their maximum as opposed to animals which are horizontal, mm-hmm. but their backbones are horizontal. And so this is uh, why the ancients thought that man or humans were the uh, paragon of creation and why the earth was at the center of the, of the universe. They didn't necessarily believe that we really were at the center of the universe, but because of our peculiar physical form, we were very, very important. This is why in yoga you have to keep your back straight. Mm. Why uh, um, in all these ancient arts, is a very, it's very important about how one uh, uh, walks and talks and, mm. and, and holds themselves because we are a creature. I call us, the human beings are three and a half dimensional creatures. <laughs> our bodies are in the 3D, lead, and our minds are in 4D, gold. Mm-hmm. And when we think up thoughts or when I talk, like I'm talking to you, or when you talk to me, or when we talk to each other, we're, we're, language is a hyper-dimensional activity, and I can paint pictures in your mind, and you can paint pictures in my mind just by using a, a series of grunts and groans mm. that animals could use. Right. But human beings have the ability to actually transform reality through language, which was a favorite subject of one of my good friends, Terence McKenna. Sure, sure. And, and we know that language and the mammalian brain and the uh, opposing thumbs all developed all at the same time. Uh, and uh, so, you know, what is evolution, you know, really? Is evolution just a series of random processes or is it an interaction between lower forces of the third dimension and the upper forces of the fourth, fifth, and sixth dimensions? And frankly, I choose the latter. I think that that is really what the subject of alchemy is looking at, discussing, and trying to uh, make available to everyone. And by the way, I think that for some reason, these concepts, which 20 years ago I couldn't get my dog to listen to, um, are suddenly <laughs> everyone is beginning to get them. Right. And I right. don't know why that is, but it is. It is true, and I've seen it in my own life. Uh, I just keep saying the same thing over and over, but people are listening now and they're understanding. And so there is something funny going on right now that's really quite amazing. No question about it. I, I, I feel the, the force of your words, trust me. Um, yep. All right, so, so, so the cathedrals uh, were, were sort of built with that uh, in mind, too, right? So they were built as yep. sort of these vertical uh, receivers of this energy, too. Yeah, they're, it's, in, in, in the alchemy terms or in, in Celtic mythology, they're called telluric forces. Mm, okay. And, mm-hmm. you know, the Orgon, if you're Wilhelm Reich, sure. or if you're Paul uh, LaViolette, it's Ethereons. Everyone has a different name for it. Right. But 
the the telluric forces come down from above and they're captured by the steeples and then they're brought to the floor of the gothic cathedrals where the people come in communal worship and by the way if you go to europe or even here in america and you look at where the cathedrals are built they're always built at the highest hill in town mm-hmm. and that's not an accident. Huh, that right. is for a reason. Right, right. Spreading out and moving through the village as it comes down from above. So you take higher dimensional forces and through the granite of the rock, just like the same rock in the pyramids is granite, and it, tra- it, it, tra- it acts as a transducer and spreads higher dimensional energy out among uh, horizontally. It takes it from the vertical and spreads it out horizontally transforming the community mm. itself, which historians say, oh, the building of the Gothic cathedrals transformed Europe, but the alchemists would say, no, the buildings mm. themselves, themselves did. transformed okay. Europe. All right. Well, and, you know, before I go on to, to, to the next thing I was going to ask you, we should mention this just for a second, and just to put the aesthetic on this, for anybody who's been in one of these places, that becomes immediately apparent uh, I've been to a number of the of the cathedrals in Europe. My favorite, I guess, is Chartres, uh, south of Paris. Uh, b- but they're all, at least all the ones that I've been in, uh, have uh, this, uh, I don't know, atmosphere, aura, energy, whatever you want to call it, just like Jay is saying. And you uh, cannot help but be put into a different uh, place when you enter these places. I mean, there's no question about it, especially if you have the opportunity to go there during maybe a quieter time when there's not a zillion people shuffling through. You know, it's amazing when you start to look at it closely. Yeah, and also there, people don't realize, but the Gothic cathedrals were actually built around chants. They were built around Gregorian chants. They were, in other words, a, a Gregorian chant was was composed and then they built the cathedral around the chant in other words the cathedral was built to enhance the the audio power of the Gregorian chant and if you've ever been in Chart or Notre Dame when a Gregorian choir is doing a cappella chanting it will floor you literally knock you off your feet Yep, and uh, I think that ties back into language like you were talking about before, Jay. So yeah, It absolutely does. Language is a higher dimensional um, uh, lattice that allows uh, 4D to be transduced into, into 3D. Okay. All right, I'll tell you what, we're just about to the bottom of the hour. Let's take a break here. When we come back, Jay, let's talk about... Um, in 1957, there was an additional chapter that was added to this enigmatic book that you're talking about, The Mystery of the Cathedrals. It was written by, again, another enigmatic character. We don't even know that much about him to this day that, that uh, we call Fulcanelli, right? Yep. Okay, so uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, the significance of this, uh, this additional chapter that was added after the fact and uh, uh, what, the, what that was all about, okay? All right, back in just a few minutes. Uh, this is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM. And uh, my guest is Jay Widener. And we're having a wonderful talk uh, about alchemy and uh, soon to get into the Great Cross of Hende. In the meantime, it's sort of an apocalyptic uh, evening tonight. And uh hope you're in sort of an eschatological state of mind. And with that in mind, 
There's a little more for you. Back in just a few minutes. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN.
All right, uh, it's R.E.M. from document number five. It's the end of the world as we know it, and it just very well may be. And uh, we're going to be getting a little bit further into that a little bit later in the program tonight with my guest, Jay Widener, the author of A Monument to the End of Time, among other books, publications, videos. And we're talking to Jay live from Seattle tonight. And... uh, all right, Jay, let's get back into it here. We're talking about this book, The Mystery of the Cathedrals, and apparently it was originally written in like 1926, and I think, uh, or thereabouts, and then some 30 years later, apparently, they add, uh, I'm not sure exactly, I guess you give us the details, but a chapter was added. Maybe we can start uh, start there. Yeah, uh, it, the book was printed in 1926, and there was only really 300 copies printed. Wow. And it was a hardcover book. And it became as rare as chicken's teeth, and no one really read it. It was just kind of a rumor because the rich people bought it, and so there was only 300 people who even owned copies. And uh, you know, a lot of people uh, wondered what it was really about. Okay. And in 1957, they uh, decided to do a mass publication of it. So they printed it up, and they put out 5,000 copy, and then later a 10,000 copy. They translated it into English. In 1959, I think they print, uh, Neville Spearman printed uh, 10,000 copies, which I own one of those copies. Mm-hmm. And uh, finally, the book got out. It actually had a big influence on the creation of the New Age because the book uh, Morning of the Magicians, which mm-hmm. is really the book that's considered to have started the New Age. And the Powell's uh, and, Powell's and Bergier. And yeah. Bergier, yeah. It, it spends uh, a good third of the book talking about Fulcanelli. In fact, Jacques Bergier actually says he met Fulcanelli, which he may or may not have. But Right, Powell sort of considered Bergier an alchemist in his own right, I think. Well, he was. Yeah, he had a lab and everything. Right. Um, the most interesting thing, and by the way, this is hardly discussed or noticed or anything, which in itself is, uh, you know, the dog that didn't bark in the middle of the night, <laughs> is uh, the fact that even though Fulcanelli had disappeared from the world right after 1926, there was a new chapter added to the book. And the chapter was called The Cyclic Cross of Hende, or Undai in French. Okay. And this uh, was about a strange, obscure monument in a churchyard found in a town called Hende in the southwestern corner of France, right across the border from Spain. As I said earlier, Hitler had visited Hende. Uh, Louis XIV was mm-hmm. buried there. Um, it was a, a, it's an odd little town. And... Uh, this chapter, only six pages long, is probably one of the most profound um, documents ever written in, uh, uh, in esoteric lore. And again, no one has really ever discussed it much outside of Fulcanelli until I happened to come along and wonder why this new chapter was in this book. Right. As I read the chapter and tried to figure out what it was saying, uh, I realized, of course, that this strange, obscure monument called the Cross of Hinde was discussing the fact that the world was going to end soon, or this age was going to end soon. And Fulcanelli is quite explicit about this in the chapter that he writes. And armed with Fulcanelli's clues, I uh, and my co-writer began really pursuing exactly what the Cross of Hinde was saying. and. Through the, through the 
through the examination of the cross of Hende, um, I discovered uh, uh, many, many uh, obscure ancient concepts. And through these ancient concepts, I was able to understand the nature of time and reality in a more profound way than I do now. Needless to say, what the cross of Hende is saying is that this age, which Fulcanelli calls the age of iron, mm. which is the age that we live in right now, is coming to a close, a rather dramatic close. And we are, I believe, about seven years away from this dramatic closing of our age, which I believe will happen in 2012. And... Uh, Indeed, many uh, uh, many of the things that are going on in the world seem to confirm and substantiate that feeling. Uh, interestingly enough, the cross indicates that there's a, going to be a 20-year period uh, at the end of time, which is going to be quite turbulent. And uh, the uh, Mayan calendar, which also ends in 2012, uh, breaks up their time periods into cartoons, mm -hmm. which are 20-year periods. Right. And so the last 20-year period of the age began in 1992 and is ending in 2012. It began 1991-92, somewhere in that time it's ending somewhere around 2011-2012. Okay. Uh, interestingly enough, almost exactly halfway in that time period is 911. Which in itself has a lot of strange uh, yeah. things going on with it. So it, 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 it's uncanny and it's weird. And um, uh, I think that the even the elites that rule our country and the world think that possibly something odd is going to happen here mm -hmm. soon. Mm -hmm. And they seem to be preparing for it. Interesting. Yeah. All, right, all right, before uh, before I before we, you tell us about the cross itself, uh, I've got a couple questions real fast about this uh, this second publication. Initially, there were only 300 books printed. As you say, it was really obscure. In fact, it was sort of a mystery. No, nobody even knew if it was real. And then, uh, 30 years later, somebody and I guess that's my first question: Who was behind the second publication? Do we know anything about the person or people that were behind it? Um, and then uh, the follow-up to that would be, why wait? Why, why wait 30 years to publish the additional Well, that content? is a great... That, that, uh, the second question is really a great question. Um, I don't know about the first question. It was just uh, it, because it, the rumor mills about the book were so hot, someone in, in the publishing world in Paris decided up. that it was worth okay. while doing it. Mm -hmm. So they got a copy of one of the original 300, and uh, basically reset the type and printed it up. Okay. Now, that's at least the, um, uh, the uh, prosaic story behind it. I believe, of course, that the whole reason that it was reprinted was to add the second chapter, okay. or add the last chapter on Hende. And the reason that was was because it was now time to release the final information in other words, 1926 wasn't the right time for it, but 1957 was the right time because this was the time of, of what you might call the terminal generation mm. or the last generation, the last full generation, the baby boom generation, whatever you want to call it, that was starting to emerge at that time. It was meant to have a heavy influence on that generation 
so that that generation would become interested in what it was all about and discover its secrets and give a rebirth to alchemy. And this rebirth to this ancient science of alchemy would decimate the age of materialism and science. Hmm. So it's wow. all a kind wow. of um, a wild thing that, that's going on. Um, I, I believe, of course, I don't really believe... While there may have been a man named Fulcanelli, uh, I'm not. I, I have no argument with that. I believe that Fulcanelli is a member of a very, very, very enlightened, advanced group of individuals who live in the Pyrenees Mountains of France. And this group is very similar to kind of the Harry Potter thing. In fact, the first Harry Potter movie is based on a Fulcanelli legend, believe it or not. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't, I, I'm sure that J.K. Rowling had read this legend and based the first book on this legend of a school in, in a giant in the mountains where people, initiates, were taken and taught the alchemical art. Hmm. And the, this, this group, I call them the masters of light, I guess, for lack of a better term, um, are... Yeah, they're the midwives to the birth of the of the golden age, which follows the death of the Iron Age. Right. And so they're pounding the nails in the coffin of the Iron Age, and they're all at the same time they're giving birth to the golden age. And mm -hmm. so this book and this chapter was really meant to do that. And again, I have to emphasize that the entire New Age, of which I'm not really a New Age follower, but it's important to note that the entire New Age really emerged because of Fulcanelli. Mm -hmm. um, his influence, or the group's influence, is deep. It's wide and it's deep. And that is really of great significance. And when you finally understand what the chapter of Hende is really telling you, then you realize that a, 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 a profound event is unfolding in front of our eyes but because it's unfolding so slowly we don't recognize it we don't see it we just see snapshots of it but if you could fly backwards and see the larger movie mm -hmm. the collection of snapshots you would see that there is a very profound thing going on in the human race right now um, and it's, it's, it's really built around a kind of initiation of uh, of the human race. History is an initiation, <laughs> and we're reaching the culmination of history right now as we're speaking here, and uh, that means that we're reaching the culmination of our collective initiation. And we are. Some people aren't going to make it. Some people are. And that's the way it is. Right. But that is really why they held the chapter back until 1957. Okay. Not time yet. All right. You know, as you were talking, it also made me it made me think about one of the one of the primary differences in my own mind between those two time periods is uh in 1957 the secrets of the atom had been uh, discovered and and this was an, an an alchemy of sorts on its own. Yes, it was a dangerous alchemy. A very dangerous alchemy. Uh, yeah, sort yeah. of sort of breaking the cosmic rules, you know. Yes, it was, and, and they realized with the breaking of the atom that, that in fact, this is what with, uh, the author uh, Berger of uh, Morning of the Magicians, when he met Fulcanelli, Fulcanelli actually told him, Berger was a nuclear physicist, 
and actually told him that the splitting of the atom was alchemy, that the alchemists had known about it for thousands of years, of which I firmly believe that, and that this was the most dangerous moment in the history of the human race. Mm -hmm. And so, again, it goes right back to what you're saying there. It was now time to break up the strident materialistic science. It was time to throw a monkey wrench into the cogwheels of, of, quote, progress, unquote. And Falconelli's intentions to me are clear that this is what he's doing. Once you understand hyperdimensional science, um, you realize what the splitting of the atom really is, and then you realize why it is so dangerous. Because it can literally cause um, holes to open between dimensions, and all sorts of little beasties can get through. Mm -hmm. And so this becomes very problematic, but that too will cause the end of time. So everything is working together to create the end of time, but I don't want to be pessimistic because Fulcanelli is very clear in saying that a golden age will follow the end of the Iron Age, and the Golden Age is a time of, uh, it's an incredible time, and uh, so, you know, uh, led into gold, it's about the time, it's about the change, about the the enculturation, the initiation that happens to the human species as we grow and mature out of our childhood's end, as Arthur C. Clarke would say. Another wonderful book, yeah. Yes, uh, Uh, all about this if you really read it very carefully. That's right. I agree with you. Yeah. And again, 2001 by Stanley Kubrick is all about this. Interestingly enough, he chooses 2001, um, Hmm. which is the right near the middle date of of this. And again, the movie is about the, the creation of a new being who is transformed by going through a hyperdimensional gate, mm-hmm. and uh, that really is what that movie is about. And so everything is, works full circle here. Uh, why would a movie as obscure and as odd as 2001 be a huge hit in oh. 1968 when it was released? Right, and, to this, it was. and to this day, just to, you know, still in in the in the cultural mind, you know. Absolutely, every single good science fiction movie owes a debt to Stanley in 2001 and they're all in a way kind kind of trying to make their own 2001 to be as profound as Stanley but they weren't um, ensconced in this alchemical tradition like Stanley was and and, and that's why Stanley moved to England got away from America he wanted to get as close to this European sense of upper and higher dimensional science as he could and a careful viewing of all of his films reveals that he knows what he's talking about and he uh, is trying to tell you great and profound things as is his co-writer Arthur C. Clarke and again Arthur C. Clarke his, his roommates that were staying with him in the 60's during the time that he was writing 2001 uh, were the people who started NASA. Hmm. They they were uh, German scientists coming over on Operation Paperclip, Paperclip who were waiting sure. for their papers to be processed so they could come over to Houston. And uh, 
and Clark and they would sit around all night with Stanley talking about these really very very advanced concepts. Oh yeah, and uh, you know one of the things that you mentioned, Morning of the Magicians, earlier, and uh, for anybody out there, if you get a chance to get a that top uh, a copy of that book, that'll that'll throw you for a loop. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Great book. I'll it is a fantastic that. book, no doubt. Uh, but they, the, the Berger and uh, and Powell's talking there about this uh, uh, the German philosophy of science and about how different it really was uh from yeah. from from the western sort of einsteinian uh, relativism that was that was being pushed here and okay. uh and the scientists were working under completely different auspices and with different assumptions and uh and it really was a whole different mindset uh it was and and it should be noted of course that they, the, the, the Foo Fighters and the first UFOs mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all emerged out of this. And uh, what are, you know, UFOs? And, and if you understand hyperdimensional science, then you realize that a hyperdimensional vehicle would most likely be round, it would most likely be spinning, it would most likely be glowing with light at night, um, mm-hmm. it would most likely have the ability to look like it's morphing. So if you videotape it, each frame would look a little bit different than the other frame. And indeed, over Mexico City in 1991, during the famous sightings, uh, slowing down the videotapes that were taken, hundreds of of videotapes were taken of hundreds of UFOs that were watching the uh, major eclipse there at 19.5 in Mexico City, and they were morphing. You know, it's it's really quite astonishing, and um, so what is going on here? And what is going on is that the, the the interaction between dimensions is increasing. Mm-hmm. It's 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 going into hyperstasis, and the there are literally hyperdimensional beings that. Um, are interacting with us right now, whereas they actually were interacting with us before. Hmm. Why they're coming here now, I don't know, but they are. And uh, it's all just really incredibly fascinating. And, uh, it's actually the only story there is right now, as far as I'm concerned. All right, it seems like, uh, like all the other stuff is either diversionary purposefully or, or just... Uh, uh, out of ignorance, but uh, either way, that the, the effect is the same. That the the masses. I read a story before I had you on the air about uh, <laughs> there was a from Istanbul. It's a real short story, but a, a whole bunch of sheep followed the leader sheep off of a cliff, <laughs> and uh, I, I sort of just used it as a metaphor and said, you know, mm-hmm. look what the sheeple. Yeah, and and it seems like for whatever reason, you know, the uh, the the culture generally is uninterested in this stuff um, and that is as it should be only the people who are interested the people that are listening to this show um, and things like that they're the only ones that really really count and I mean I hate to sound so callous but it's, and you should have compassion for all those people who don't know and don't care but and you should do everything you can to help them and enlighten them as to what's really going on but for those who don't know and don't care, well, that's just the way it is. Yeah, um, what are you we do? have to, yeah, we have to keep talking among ourselves, mm. and we're we're constantly 
you know, with the internet and shows like this and, 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 and research, we're always raising the ante on this thing. That's no what's question. so great about it. Yeah, no question. And so everybody's raising the ante and they're all comparing notes now because of the internet and so our knowledge is just, just skyrocketing. Right, Before right. the end of time, everything will be known. Yeah. Within the next seven years, Everything that's worth knowing will be known. It, you know, it really is astonishing because you 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 make the point that it, it it does seem like at the same time all of our problems are sort of coming to a head at the same time as this huge uh, outbreak of information and creativity and all these things. And it 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 really is sort of a a tug of war maybe between those two things. It seems like information yeah. versus power, <laughs> something yeah, like information. that. Yeah. Information's what's loose on this planet right, right now, right. And, and 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 the people in power can't put the the genie back in the bottle, mm. and they don't know what to do about it. Their whole corporate state is ruled by quick communication via the internet, so they really can't censor the internet. Right, and they, they can't so take down this the is internet. why they haven't censored the internet, and so they're stymied, and uh, you know and they don't know really what's happening, and so underneath. You know why the giant dinosaurs are dying and being caught in the tar pits. You know the little mammals are scurrying around in the deep underbush, right. and uh, right. you know eventually going to replace the dinosaurs as the right. dominant species. And that's what's going on now. Right. Underneath the underbrush of the internet are, are the the new the new humans are scurrying around, creating a whole new paradigm that's literally blowing the other paradigm out the water and of course people like us talk to people like them and you might as well be talking to a wall you know so and of course this seems to be the biggest complaint going nowadays among enlightened people is how when they try to explain things about what's really going on to other people they get a blank stare uh, a bored look. Uh, you know, I'm sure all of the people who are listening know what I'm talking about. Oh yeah, yeah. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I started doing my radio show. I, I, I realized that I couldn't sell it. In other words, me going out and trying to tell people, you know, ideas that I was entertaining and different things and this and that that were just interesting to me, became a point where well, you just realized it didn't make no, nobody wanted to hear it so I decided well I'll just start doing a radio show and then the people that do want to hear it maybe they'll listen to the show you know so and they will and um, it, it, it's, it's, it's truly an amazing time to be alive it it's, it's scary but it's extremely exciting it and, sure is I, I, yeah I, it is I could not agree more alright well I'll tell you what it's a little bit before the top of the hour so let's do it let's take a break here we'll come back and then let's talk about the cross um, right. let's talk about uh, we probably won't have enough time to go too deeply into how you deciphered uh, what you deciphered but we could talk certainly about uh, all the images that are on the base and, and, and I want to talk about the inscription and the Latin yeah they can get the video if they want to get into it in depth or one of the books right right and um, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do that as soon as we come back alright Alright. Okay, you guys, uh, this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia. My guest is Jay Widener, and uh, we're having a wonderful conversation about alchemy and uh, the true science that it really is and was, and uh, also some related things, including this interesting cross at Henday, France, that we're going to talk about as soon as we get back. So stick around. We'll be back in just a few minutes. In the meantime, this is Chris Cornell from Euphoria Morning, another Seattle boy, one of my favorites. And uh, back again in just a few minutes with Jay Widener. This is Radio Orbit, KOPN. Hello, 
You're listening to Radio Orbit with Mike Hagan on KOPN 89.5 FM. All right, some of the operating funds for KOPN are provided by listener support and, for a don- and uh, from a donation from the Blue Note. Information about the Blue Note is available at www.thebluenote.com. Or you can call them at 573-874-1944. Yeah, good stuff for Blue Note. Been bringing music here now for 25 years. Going on 26, too. Thanks to Richard and everybody over there. Always enjoy good music. In fact, Kenny Wayne Shepard coming up uh, next Wednesday. I'll probably do a promo for that a little bit later, but uh, uh, that's something that uh, is coming to the Blue Note in just a few days. And I will be there. All right, uh, this is Mike Hagan, and you are listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN, Columbia. My guest tonight is Jay Widener, and we're going to get right back to him here. We're talking about uh, alchemy a gentleman named Falconelli and uh, this mysterious cross in the town of Hende, France. So, Jay, let's start there. Let's talk about this cross and um, what, uh, what it looks like and then what it means. Yeah, the uh, cross is uh, it's just a churchyard outside of the cathedral there in, uh, in Hende, and uh, it's about 12 feet tall. It has a pedestal. It's about three and a half feet tall. It has four engravings on each side of the pedestal. There's a Greek column on top of the pedestal and then a Greek cross on top of the column. On one side of the Greek cross are the four letters that were above Jesus as he was on the cross, I-N-R-I and on the other side is a strange Latin inscription which is broken as it reads. And Latin inscription ostensibly says Hail, O cross, the only hope, which is a medieval Christian phrase that was frequently on gravestones uh, across France and England and Germany at the time. Okay, hey, uh, there's four drawings on the pedestal. Are uh, one is on the east side is a kind of an exploding eight-sided star. On the north side is a fairy tale moon. On the west side is an Aztec-looking, angry sun face, mm-hmm. and on the um, on the south side is a strange oval with four odd-looking A's in each of the quadrants. The oval has a cross in it, and each of the quadrants has a strange-looking A, with instead of a straight crossbar, the A has a right-angled crossbar, looking very much like a Freemasonic symbol. Okay. Okay, it doesn't sound like much. Well, hey, hey Jay, let me jump in real fast, too. Um, uh, for people, if you want to get a visual of this, uh, you can, again, go to my site and just click on that image or Jay's name or whatever, and that'll take you over to jwidener.com. And uh, there's uh, plenty of, uh, of pictorial and visual representations of the stuff that we're talking about right now. So if you have your computers on, jump up and get on the web, and, uh, and uh, you, can, you can look uh, and see exactly what Jay's talking about here. Okay. Yeah, um, either the uh, topology of time, which is one of the top articles there, right on the first page has pictures of it. Of course, there's a picture of me standing next to the cross <laughs> on the front of the, uh, the website. And 
Um, so, you know, why is this cross important, I guess, is, is, is the real question. Well, as, as I began, you know, deciphering the cross slowly, I found out a lot of really odd things. Uh, I found out that there was a, a, a tarot card relationship to the images on the four pedestal, on uh, the four images on the pedestal. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, uh, number 17 of the tarot deck is an eight-sided exploding out star. Number 18, notice that we're in succession. Right, number 18 right. is a fairy tale moon. Number 19 is a sun with a face. And number 20 is not an odd oval with four A's in it, but it is the day of judgment. Hmm. And so you can see that the cross is leading you through uh, this this ancient science of tarot cards leading you to the day of judgment. I believe, of course, that the tarot cards are actually a uh, way, uh, another way that the 4D and 5D space is transduced down into 3D. The moment, of course, that you outlay your tarot cards is a, a description of, of time. Time is, is really a shadow of fourth dimensional space. Mm. And so, um, you know, this cross seems to be directing you towards the Day of Judgment, which, of course, is a Christian and Kabbalist term for the uh, end of time. At the end of time, at the end of the great procession of the equinoxes, um, it, it's like the cycle of reincarnations come to an end. So you do reincarnate, but you only reincarnate for a certain cycle of time. And then at the end, you're weighed, your soul is weighed. In ancient Egypt, you know, when you died, your heart was weighed and it had to be lighter than a feather. Mm. If it wasn't, then you didn't get to ascend. And so you're, you're weighed by, did you live a life that was full of value? And, 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 and did you live a life of compassion and integrity? And so the end of time, you know, very close to what it says in the book of Revelation, we are all kind of judged. I don't know if it's the fierce judgment of, of, of God or if it's a, a kind of a weighing of the soul, a weighing of, and did you turn your soul into light? Hmm. You know, did you spend your time wisely while you were here? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so I think at the end of time, which the cross is pointing at, is that time period, and I think we're approaching it really rather quickly. Uh, um, and so, so this also ties into the to, to the Mayan calendar, and then the Kali Yuga, or, or the Hindu ideas of the Yugas as well. I yes. guess so. So all these things are sort of uh, pointing towards the same thing, in other words. Well, it's interesting. Or it as seems my research that way, went, maybe. Yeah, as my research went on, I discovered, you know, um, one of uh, a person that later became a good friend of mine, John Major Jenkins, had written mm. a book called. Maya Cosmogenesis right. 2012, right. of which he deciphered the uh, Mayan calendar and realized that it was coming to an end with the galactic alignment uh, where the sun and the galaxy are rising at the same time on the winter solstice of 2012. Well, then that, that, that caused me to go look at other uh, end-of-the-world uh, theologies from ancient cultures, and I discovered that, of course, I'll get into the Peruvian thing in a few minutes, but I discovered that in Tibet that they uh, uh, they said that Shambhala, which mm. is their sacred city, right. would be recreated uh, on Earth and being built from the sky in 2012. 
I learned that the Zeptepi, which is called the first time, translated as the first time, in ancient Egypt also was going to happen at this time period. And um, when I uh, interpreted the broken Latin inscription on the cross, which I'm not going to get into now because it's a little complicated, but one can go either get the DVD or the books and figure out, you know, watch my blow-by-blow description of how I deciphered the broken Latin inscription. It points to uh, another cross in Peru and also caves in Cusco, Peru. Mm. When I went to Cusco and Peru, um, I learned that the Peruvian shamans believed that time was coming to an end in 2012 and that a new species called Homo luminous was about to emerge. And so there I had four different cultures from four different places on Earth from four different time periods, all pointing at 2012 as being some incredible culmination of history. And in crime uh, uh, investigations, I used to be a journalist, you wanted at least, when you were dealing with circumstantial evidence, you needed to have at least three different sources that confirmed your circumstantial evidence before you could really go forward and say that this circumstantial evidence rises above the prosaic and actually has something to do with the crime. Well, the the same thing applies here. You find three or four cultures from different places on Earth that are all saying that something profound is going to happen in 2012, then it's time to maybe start taking that seriously. Mm. And and I do. And uh, I live my life in, in, in the way that I think that time is starting mm-hmm. to unravel, come to an end, and what that means is anybody's guess. Right. You know, it's uh, it's interesting, and I'll, I'll mention something here uh, to my listeners. The it is rather complicated the way Jay translates this inscription, and my first instinct was that it was a stretch, and I'll be honest with you, until the Urkos thing came up and then the cross was there and uh, that was the that, w- that was sort of the the, the kicker for me uh, I mean everything else makes sense as well but but I, I think it was more of an intellectual uh, problem for me the understanding of the uh, of the uh, uh, deciphering of the Latin inscription and maybe I just didn't spend enough time on it or whatever but the bottom line is this stuff is paying out and and the things that are theoretically uh, coming together on paper are showing up in real life in the hills of Peru. Well, uh, they are. Um, it's interesting. Right after uh, a monument to the end of time came out in 1999, with the Peru research in it. Um, you know, I, I've been to Peru a few times, and I found a lot of incredibly profound things there. Um, but. Uh, right at that moment, right when the book came out, uh, actually came out in 99, but it really came out in a big publication in September 2000. Mm-hmm. In October, late October of 2000, um, essentially the Peruvian government was more or less overthrown um, by uh, 
I guess you could say like the New World Order. Mm. And they mm. put in their own guy. They had a, I forget his name now, he was a Japanese Peruvian gentleman who was actually a pretty good president. And he had taken Peru out of the shining path, communist mm. rebels, and, mm -hmm. and, and really saved the economy of Peru, and the people really liked him. And all of a sudden he was thrown out, and a Harvard-educated man was put in, and... Um, all of a sudden, there were armed guards around the cave opening in Peru, and it was almost like I had accidentally caused some kind of clampdown, which I felt kind of bad about, actually, and still do, because I had no idea that they were um, as interested in this stuff as I was, hmm. and that they're still very interested in it. The, certain powers that be are very interested in this esoteric work and right, for right. what reason I have no idea right. so uh, yeah the, the, and I have to agree with you even I thought that you know my breakdown of the Latin inscription was a stretch but when I discovered the Urcos uh, oh, signal yeah. coming backwards through the top word oh, yeah. um, what could I do I mean my yeah. jaw just dropped to the oh, yeah. floor yeah. I just said you know my god what are the chances of this well, especially because Fulfinelli warns us in this chapter that once you understand what the Latin inscription is really telling you, you'll understand that it's naming a country, mm -hmm. a country where the where the cataclysm that is coming won't reach. And here it was; it was named Peru. What could I do? You know. And so, uh, just to clarify that, it's such an important point. So Fulcanelli points to this clue as saying that this is going to be a safe place when uh, right. when when the when the wave hits whatever that might that's be that's right 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 and so you know I went to Peru and I found I found these incredible caves and then I found that it was a kind of just a blase thing that there was these huge oh, miles long caves that had been carved by humans running all under the Andes Mountains, and that uh, Pizarro believed that the Inca had hidden their gold there, and, and, and they weren't just, you know, they, they, were, they were everywhere. Right. And uh, David Hatcher Childress, who's a friend of mine, he's actually, you know, walked through these things, mm -hmm. you know, miles through these things. And I thought, my God, this is, you know, completely astonishing right. that there's this gigantic tunnel system running underneath the Andes Mountains and that the Cross of Hende is pointing at it. And then I began thinking, you know, okay, so let's say that something happens, an asteroids hit or a galactic wave or a pole shift or any number of scenarios that could happen that could deal a disaster. Where, where would you want to be? And then I, I realized, of course, you would want to be first underground so you're protected and then two, you'd want to be way high up in case there were tidal waves. Mm -hmm. And there you are at, you know, 13,000 feet, 14,000 feet, one of the highest places, the highest cities in the world is Cusco. And um, there's the caves. And you would be protected in this cave network. And you're telling, and me, course, that, and you're telling me now, though, that these caves have basically been commandeered by government military types or something yeah they have been they were I have they have been always kind of commandeered by them because people used to get lost in them mm. so they would have to spend you know thousands and thousands of pesos uh, right. trying to you know with crews trying to get people out there's a famous story of a, of a mass on a Sunday in Santa Domingo Cathedral in Cusco in the 30s 
And uh, when the choir finished singing one of their songs, everybody in the church, you know, heard this mad slamming on the floor below them. And so after the mass, they kind of broke open the floor and they found a guy who had been lost in the tunnel system for two weeks. And he had come because he, he, he towards the church because he heard the singing. And he'd crawled his way through, and they found this huge tunnel system underneath the church that ran all the way uh, across um, the Sacred Valley and came out all the way on the other end of the Sacred Valley. So the, the Peruvian government has concreted off many of these openings now, so you can't get in um, because of, I don't know, various reasons, I guess. And, yeah, uh, it, but it's a well-known fact that, you know, that you, you basically... If you get caught in the tunnel system, you're on your own. They're not going to come get you anymore. Right. And so everyone kind of stays out. However, the Inca, or actually the Quechua people that mm -hmm. live there, have assured me that they um, know the tunnel system very well That's and that right. they used it to get away from Pizarro and the uh, Spanish. Very interesting. You know, it. Uh, there are a couple things I want to mention to you uh, that you brought to mind. First of all, there was a book that I read many years ago, and it was called The Secret of the Andes. And oh, yeah. it's written by this, only by this guy, talk about an, an enigma, it goes by Brother Philip. And, and yep. uh, anyway, he talked quite a bit in there about these underground labyrinthian cave and tunnel systems where, uh, and again, where initiations may go on and things like that in Peru. And then when I got more familiar with your material, that was just another confirmation of that, again, from a completely obscure and, and other source, you know? Well, um, also, um, David Hatcher Childress reports, I can't remember which book it is, but... Um, there's a huge rumor that Fulcanella, well, we know that Marconi disappeared mysteriously right. in the 30s. Right, right. And um, the rumor has it that Marconi and Fulcanelli went to Peru and started an alchemical school somewhere in the vast wilderness. I'll tell you this, if you wanted to get lost on this planet, Peru is the place to That's go. the place to do I it. I mean, it is obscure uh there's four ecosystems the driest desert on earth the wettest jungle on earth the highest mountains on earth uh you could get lost in one of those valleys oh. and never be seen again man oh man you know you just made me think of something else too and and uh i, I talk about uh, alchemy and i think this goes back to uh, Athanasius kirshner or someone like that but and he said the oldest books the highest mountains the furthest countries the deepest forest. This is where you must seek the stone. Well, that's interesting because Alberto Viodo, who's a shaman who uh, goes to Peru all the time, told me that the Quechua have told him that there are giant libraries in the Andes Mountains and um, they're uh, waiting until the end of time to bring all the information out. Hmm. Also, um, when I was in Peru, I would hang around in Cusco and, and talk to people, and uh, some hikers told me a story that um, that had happened a year before I had gone there, where uh, a couple was up high in the mountains hiking alone, and they heard strange chanting going on, and they looked over a hill, and there was a group of white men in uh, um, uh, literally levitating the water out of a lake 
and they looked, and one of the men looked and saw that the hikers had see, saw them, and they woke up uh, 30 miles away, <laughs> like two days later, and they don't remember anything else. Oh I mean, so these, these stories go, are going on all the time right. in that area, by right. the way. Yeah, it's just a, well, talk about a psychedelic area. This is just a whole psychedelic thing that's going on down there. Well, on top of that, yeah, the major, uh, the, the most psychedelics in the entire, organic psychedelics in the entire world, of course, where are they found? Yeah, they grow right there. That's right. Right. Very strange. Well, it's a fascinating place. Yeah, that is something else. And uh, yeah, Peru is a place that uh, might have to go on the on the list of uh, uh, of visits for sure. Hey, you know, I highly recommend it. You know, speaking of that, I wanted to mention something too. We haven't talked yet about the the actual uh, the cross itself being there. And and, and I want to know if if you had this. Yeah, I I actually went there myself. I I got married in. Uh, September of 2001, and for uh, for our honeymoon, we went we went to uh, the Basque area of France there and Spain, and we stayed. And part of the reason was because of your book. I was I was reading. I'd been reading Monument for uh, for about a year. It took me a long time to get through it, quite frankly, because it's a pretty sophisticated book. And uh, anyway. Uh, as I was reading it, I was sort of like you know trying to come up with a way to celebrate my wedding and all this stuff. My wife wanted to go to Europe, but I didn't want to do something passe. I wanted to do something cool. So anyway, we found a great place to stay down there, and we went to Undai, or to Undai. And, I mean, just did, did just when I found, finally found it in that little town, of course, there's a casino there, and there's all this stuff going on, and nobody knows where it's at. And uh, it was actually sort of, even knowing what I was looking for, it was hard to find. Uh, but when we found it, I, I sort of was just like, whoa, it's real. Here it is, and I and I've got a I've got a picture exactly like the one that's on your homepage of myself, right in that position. And my me and my wife laughed so hard about it uh, last night when we when we were looking at the at the photos. But it was just this. It was really like like uh, a profound moment for me, and and I had and it was just a reader. I can't imagine what it must have been like for you when you actually stepped into that square and said, my God, there it is. Well, it was uh, extremely profound. Uh, my wife and I also got married in France. Um, uh, I, I dropped uh, to my knees, actually. Uh, I completely uh, lost all of my strength. I had been uh, pursuing this work for, uh, at that time, for 14 years and uh, realized that I had never really seen the cross and wasn't even sure if it was not some kind of alchemical trick or something, you know, because alchemists like to pull little tricks. Right, right. And uh, when I pulled up to the church there and finally found a parking place and made my way across the town, and I finally found the cross, which you're right, no one knew about it, um, my, my, my uh, knees buckled, uh, all, that's all I can say. I, I was so overwhelmed by, you know, being in front of it and touching it and, you know, being able to really understand, you know, the age of the cross of Hende mm. that I, you know, it just absolutely blew my mind. I've been there a couple more times since then, and it still blows my mind. By the way, the cross has really deteriorated. Yeah. Last time I was there a couple of years ago, it had seriously deteriorated over my first visits. 
So that's a little disconcerting also. Well, yep, and that's happening to so many monuments around the world, you know, but at least we've got it documented. At least there's great imagery of it now, and hopefully uh, we can somehow reverse it and restore it or something in the future here because it really is uh, quite a remarkable uh, piece of work with a, with, with a story that's absolutely astonishing the deeper you get into it. And, yes. I mean, it, it, it really is. And um, Especially it, when you consider that um, one of Pizarro's men in Peru drew a, a drawing called The Secret of the Incas and it has exactly the four images that are on the pedestal. Who's that? Iaya? Iaya? Yeah, Guaman de Iaya. Right. And, and, I mean, that's just amazing. And this is the most profound images to the Incan people. So here we are, you know, halfway around the earth. The cross is pointing at this country. And here, one of the very first white people to be in Peru draws this drawing, you know, which is on the cross of Hende. And... You know, synchronicities pile upon synchronicities oh until gosh. it becomes ridiculous. Right. No question about it. You know, uh, you you also mentioned one thing that I want to bring up really quick. you Quickly, you said this, uh, the alchemists sometimes like to play tricks. And, again, there's a connection there with the shaman and the sort of trickster god. And because the shaman yeah. and the elders and the people I know in, in those, they like to play tricks, too. And it's uh, there really is... A direct connection or correlation between the shaman and the alchemist. In fact, it may be sort of the same thing, just expressed differently culturally. I agree, and that it gets you into the whole idea of, of why are they doing these tricks? Mm. And then you realize, and this is what worries me about the cross of Hende at the time, that these tricks are to open up synaptic responses in the brain, and to it, it, it's like. If, you, if, if someone tells you a joke and they have to explain the punchline to you, it's not funny. But if you get the joke immediately, there's really no logical process for understanding a good joke. It just it either hits you or it doesn't. Mm. And uh, that's, that's what, what they're trying to do. They're trying to kind of create a cosmic joke that has a punchline that opens you up like a Zen koan. Or right, right, for new ways of it's thinking. Quite, quite amazing, quite profound, and I, of course, was afraid that the cross of Hindi wasn't even real. It was just someone Volcanelli trying to get me to think about things in a mm. certain way, mm. which was good, and I would not have been sad that much if the cross hadn't been there, but I was extremely glad it was. Right. Well, it is there, and uh, for anybody out there who doubts it, you're hearing it from me, too. I've been there in the flesh. I've seen it with my own eyes, and climbed up on top of it and uh, took a picture uh, right next to it and many of them actually I was photographing like crazy around there because I was thinking I wonder if I'll catch something in one of these photos that uh, <laughs> you know that's significant but yeah. at any rate okay well uh, it's bottom of the hour we're going to take a break here we'll come back and we'll have about uh, 20 or 25 to finish things up so uh, decide how you want to close out and um, uh, relax just for a few minutes, everybody, and we'll be back, okay, with uh, Jay Widener, and we're uh, really getting into it here, and we're going to talk about, uh, I think, Jay, we should probably, I guess, get to this whole idea of the end of time and what it really might mean and what, uh, I don't know, I mean, uh, what the heck is really going on? <laughs> you know? Sounds good. Okay, uh, back in just a few minutes. This is Mike, you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia. 
bigger than us, larger than we bargain. I guess it's just not done. It's big Uh, it is about 1.34 in the a.m. on uh, Tuesday morning, the 12th. Man, can't believe it. 12th of July already. And uh, my guest, who's been uh, kind enough to spend uh, his evening with us tonight for the last hour and a half, and we're going to have another half hour with Jay Widener here on the phone, live from Seattle, talking about the cyclic cross at Henday and uh, Falconelli and alchemy and all of the way that these things are sort of converging uh, to right now, actually. And apparently, uh, and this is not the only sign, of course, you know, this isn't the only thing we've talked about in this program. We talk about a lot of uh, different things and uh, 
Lots of things seem to be pointing in the same direction right now, Jay. Lots and lots of things, and not just uh, metaphysical things, you know, lots of different things in many, many, many different areas of human endeavor. Well, I certainly agree with that. There's uh, profound advances in brain uh, chemistry science and in uh, uh, nanotechnology, Mm. and one just has to step back a little bit and put it all together, and they realize that uh, if the world does go on, (laughs) it's going to be one incredibly strange place in wow. a few years so um, you know it's just getting stranger and stranger and weirder and weirder and uh, so those that can surf the high the waves of high weirdness are going to be the ones who, who, who make it to the beach so I think that's right all right well talking about waves um, one of the uh, the gentlemen who was uh, uh, whose research sort of dovetailed and and uh, eventually uh, helped uh, some of your stuff makes sense was um, uh, a PhD astrophysicist named Paul Laviolette and my my audience is familiar with Dr. Laviolette, he's been on the show before but I'm sure that they're not familiar with uh, the connection between his work and yours, so let's uh, let, let's make that connection now oh, I'd love to, he's one of my favorite people alright, great um, uh, yeah, well in 1997 uh, I was a uh, hired by a very wealthy man in Boulder, Colorado to put together a conference uh, called Awakening the Awakening Gaia Conference. And I brought Graham Hancock and Robert Paval and Robert Temple and David Hatcher Childress and Jocelyn Godwin, some of the great esoteric thinkers of our time, together for a, a five-day conference, which was quite profound. I was like a kid in a candy store with my favorite people being coming and inviting. And one of the people I invited was Paula Violet, and I invited him because of his book, Beyond the Big Bang, which was a very profound book about alchemy and hyperdimensional physics and um, wanted his work to be introduced to the larger group. But when he arrived in uh, Boulder to give his lecture, which I wanted to be on Beyond the Big Bang, he insisted that his lecture was going to be on a book that had just and written called mm-hmm. Earth Under Fire. Right, right. Uh, we, we got a small little tiff about it because I wanted it to be beyond the Big Bang. Paul's kind of stubborn. He insisted it was going to be Earth Under Fire. <laughs> I gave up finally, sat down in my seat to watch, you know, this lecture on a book I knew nothing about, you know, prayed that it was going to go just fine. Right. And sat down, and over the next hour and a half, literally, uh, almost melted, had a meltdown in my seat um, as I watched his lecture. And I realized, I I sprang up after the lecture, I'll never forget it, I sprang up and I ran up to the podium and I I said, I said, surely you've read Falconelli? And and he says, Falca who? And I said, I said, you've never read any of this stuff? And he goes, I don't know what you're talking about. Alchemy is a, a goofy science about lead into gold. Oh, my God. And, I, and I, I was just floored. So then I sat down and I, I, I told him about my research. Mm-hmm. But basically, what Paula Violette had discovered was the thing that really sealed the cross of Hemde and the symbols on the pedestal. For Volcanelli tells us in the chapter on Hende 
that there's going to be a double cataclysm. Okay, he good. never explains what he means, though, by that. He just says double cataclysm. Okay. I had never been able to figure out what it meant. How could a pole shift or how could meteors or whatever cause a double cataclysm? But when I watched Paula Violet's lecture, I knew exactly what the pedestal meant. For what Paula Violet was saying, and some of your listeners are probably familiar with it, is that the center of the galaxy periodically has a blow-off or an explosion. And what happens is, is that the giant star or multi-star that is at the center of our galaxy has a, a, an explosion. This explosion is called a Seyfert galaxy, mm. a 7 to 15 percent of all galaxies in the known universe are in their explosive state. So all galaxies have an explosive state and they have a quiescent state. So uh, when this explosion happens, um, a stream of dust particles spews out from the center and rolls through the, the disk of the ecliptic of the galaxy. Eventually, like a wave, it hits our solar system, okay? So the first thing that happens when the galaxy explodes is you see a star-like object exploding in the night sky. And then a while later, because light travels faster than dust, the dust storm hits, this cosmic dust storm. And it hits our solar system and it turns the moon to blood red and it covers the skin of the sun and begins to cause the sun to flare huge solar flares that bake the inner planets of the solar system. Um, so that brought me back to the pedestal. And, of course, on the east side of the pedestal is an exploding star, and on the west side, exactly opposite of the exploding star on the pedestal, mm. is the angry sun phase. Right, right. And now I knew why it was an angry sun, because it was flaring from the dust storm. And, oddly enough, Excuse me. Oddly enough, um, um, LaViolette had done ice core sample drillings in Greenland and had discovered that every 26,000 years, there's a layer of iridium. Iridium is a uh, deep space dust. It's what this dust is made of. And rhodium. I won't even get into the fact that iridium is a vital um, chemical to the alchemical process. <laughs> Let's just talk about it as a space dust. As space dust, why it, 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 it comes in 26,000-year cycles. Well, that is exactly the cycle of the precession of the equinoxes, this long-term clock schedule that the zodiac sign goes through, taking 26,000 years to go through. Right. And suddenly I realized that there was some kind of connection between the precession of the equinoxes and this periodic explosion from the center of the galaxy. Furthermore, I understood what the double cataclysm meant because first part of the cataclysm is the exploding star at the center of the galaxy. The second part is the solar flaring, which takes place sometime later. Um, a, a favorite writer of mine named René Grenon, who is a, a French traditionalist right. alchemical writer, right. um, wrote many times that at the end of time the great masters disappear and are no longer around and synchronicity becomes 
the guiding master for the humans that are left at the end of time because time is happening so much more quickly as we reach the end point uh, synchronicities pile up on synchronicities and you know, the perceiving person can realize that these synchronicities are sending right, messages right, right. and so you know what are the chances that I, I would have even have this conference what are the chances that you know, Leviolette would have just finished his book what are the chances that he would insist on doing it you know, it, 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 you know just right. the things all begin piling up until well, here, you, you can't believe it you know let me let me throw another one on the pile okay yeah. <laughs> uh, Paul Laviolette when he took his core samples right in yep. green in Greenland the analysis that he did was done right here in Columbia Missouri where I'm sitting at the University of Missouri because he had to use the reactor uh, yeah. in order to do the the carbon uh, dating and right. and I didn't know it either uh, but after I after I uh, interviewed him he sent me a couple we, 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 we still stay in touch in fact I called him the other night and I didn't get him but I left him a message and said hey you and me and Jay need to do a show together uh, yeah. but uh, at any rate he sent me a note with uh, one of the one of the correspondences that we've had and said oh by the way uh, all the core sample work was done right there at Mizzou <laughs> and I was just like yeah. you've got to be kidding me you know and again yeah. it, they, they just keep coming and coming and coming so they do and and, and and you know, so it requires almost a hyper awareness to know why these things and what they mean and everything. But uh, you know, that was probably one of the most profound events of my whole life. Mm -hmm. uh, sitting in that lecture hall, mm -hmm. watching this guy, this you know, mild-mannered, bespectacled <laughs> astrophysicist, confirming you know an obscure alchemical cross. 400 years built 400 years oh ago by God. an unknown builder right. uh, and then of course that begs the question how did the unknown builder know this person who built the cross in the 1600s and of course Fulconelli says that the builder had you know profound knowledge of science and astronomy but how oh. how could he have known and right. that that just you know just the idea that there's people who understand Hyperdimensional physics and transgalactic uh, 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 astronomy. The center of the galaxy wasn't even discovered until 1917. Hmm. You can't see the center of the galaxy. Right, right. So, you know, it's incredible, actually. And um, and again, it, it also points to Jenkins' work on the Mayan calendar, which, of course, is using the center of the galaxy right. as its prime location point. Yeah, um, and you know, uh, and you, you you've mentioned John uh, Major Jenkins a couple times, and I know you I know you're aware that that Terence wrote the wrote the foreword to that book, and and Terence came to that conclusion through his own <laughs> uh, interesting lens uh, long yeah. long before he knew anything about the, the the Maya, quite frankly, or 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 any of uh, the the conclusions that you've come to. I mean, his work was basically based on the old Chinese oracle, the I Ching. Well, uh, interestingly enough, in 1991, I spent a, a night showing my Hende work to Terence. And at the time, I was, it was really, I was having a difficult time with it. And uh, Terence, you know, looked at it and, and looked up at me and he says, you know, I have no idea why I'm telling you this, but this all has to do with the center of the galaxy. My God. And I had, it, it was, you know, six years later. 
before I had anything pointing at mm-hmm. the center of the galaxy. And then, you know, that was with La Violette. And then, right. you know, here we go, you right. know, right. Uh, right. Right. Terrence's prescience was astonishing. No question and about it. He really is the father of this whole movement, and uh, um, I owe him, a, you know, a great debt of gratitude. I know John Major Jenkins does, and a lot of us. As, as do I. As do I. Yes. And and uh, and Dennis is uh, Dennis is a friend, and he's still doing great work, and he's uh, he's he's in the background for sure, and he's watching very closely. And he's been on the show here before too, and I think we're probably going to get him on again before the end of the year, but. Uh, I tell you, it is really something else what's happening right now, Jay. Well, it sounds like a great show. I'd love to be able to hear Dennis McKenna. Yeah, he was on the um, show back in November of last year, and we had a real uh, nice conversation. Yeah, he's great. Uh, yeah, so, you know, all these things are are are, are, are coalescing in such a wild way that, you know, I, I really am just sorry that Terrence isn't around to, to really see yeah. the, the fruition of all of his efforts. And he was on to some really profound things. Oh my gosh! He passed away. He was he was working on um, the origins of alchemy in Celtic Europe and the Druid um, culture, and was turning me on some stuff that you know. Uh, one day, I hopefully will be able to write a book about, which is really profound and shows that the uh, Druids were definitely you know psychedelic shaman alchemists. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, very, very profound stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, um, let's see. Let's well, let, let let's let's kind of go back to let's let's let the snake eat its tail here. Like we've been talking about all night. Let's get back to alchemy uh, for a second. What what it really means then, as we started out talking about that, it means much more than just trying to turn uh, base metals into gold. It means this idea of the transmutation of the self of the human spirit somehow and this is somehow perhaps tied into this uh, this rollover or this change or this end of the age or the end of time or however we want to define it this is somehow connected to that it must be yeah the human species is the lead and through the um, through time and through history um, that lead is transmuted into gold. So you know, history, is, you know, one of the most amazing things about, especially modern history, is the fact that we're even still here. Um, uh, the idea yeah, that you yeah. know we could have somehow survived um, thousands and thousands of megaton weapons pointed right. at each other, right. and not one of them ever went off. Mm-hmm. Not one of them ever, you know, did the damage that they could have done so horribly. Right. Um, shows that there's like some invisible hand on the rudder of history, <laughs> and that invisible hand is there, and it's guiding history. History is a um, a terrifying sometimes initiation leading us towards something that is uh, filled with great profundity and history is that is the process of that initiation uh, for those who have been initiated really initiated they know that initiations are incredibly dangerous mm-hmm. incredibly frightening and also incredibly enervating and that's what we're going through now, and we're reaching that culmination point right now. Um, and it's it's going to be a white knuckle ride. It's going to be a make or break situation. It already is, mm-hmm. and 
all of the all of the people who aren't you know telling us the truth are really being exposed. I mean, maybe they're not being exposed to everybody, right. but there's a large group of people that just cannot be fooled anymore. Right. 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 And you know that that's part of it too. It's really a a, a great time, and uh, I encourage everyone to you know hold on because it's going to get just weirder and better and stranger and uh, if we can slip through the wormhole that exists at the end of time uh, yeah. we're going to be just fine yeah that is uh, that is the trick here like it and you mentioned a, a birthing event and that's that's a metaphor that Terence used to like like to use as well and yeah. that is sort of what history is this uh, it's been a long uh, gestation and we are now at the narrow neck and uh, uh, like you say, uh, the the outcome. Any time you're in that sort of a situation, it is an initiation. It is uh, the end of life <laughs> as you know it into something new. Well, Terrence used to say that you know, what if you were wandering around in a in a building and you opened up a door and you found you know this woman covered in blood and screaming? Mm -hmm. uh, your first reaction would be, you know, something absolutely horrible is going on here. But then, you know, you would learn that, oh, actually, she's giving birth right. to a baby. Right. And, and and that's really the analogy. Sometimes our initial reaction to what is going on is of horror. But then as we begin to understand, we realize that it isn't really nearly as nasty as we think it is. And I really do believe, I mean, I don't want to sound Pollyanna-ish or anything, but I really do believe this. And I, I really think that... Uh, uh, you know, which is is just try to stay on the surfboard as long as you can. Yeah, you know? I, I couldn't agree more. I've, I've, I'm feeling. I mean, I'm I'm certainly not hopeless, and uh, I think I think there is reason for hope, and I think there's a lot of good reasons for it. Again, like 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 we talked about earlier, there are lots and lots of things that are happening uh, right now that are that are uh, remarkable, amazing things. So that are happening, good things that are happening at the same time as all these horrible things are happening. They're all happening at the same time. Yeah, anything can happen now. That's the thing. Hmm. Anything can happen. That's right. And yeah, it's a quantum realization. And hmm. once you understand that we really kind of do make our reality, that hmm. this really is a reflective universe, hmm. that it reflects our thoughts back at us, then it's time to uh, you know take control of the situation. Hmm. You know, it's like lucid dreaming. A lucid dream is where you know that you're dreaming. So why don't we just become lucid dreamers and take this dream and turn it into something that we want it to be instead of just having the dream push us around? Yeah, start to redream the dream, no doubt. Redream the dream, that's right. And you know, so psychedelics and shamanism and all the things that have gone on are all part of this thing. And um, alchemy is the science of the end of time, and that's where we are right now. And I would say we've got about seven years left. So time for everyone to uh to start considering what that really means all right, all right. well look uh, i got one last question and that is uh where are you going to be 20 in 2012 <laughs> uh well i'm not going to be in peru i'm going to try to be at Giza. um interesting standing between the paws of the sphinx because that's uh in Falconelli's mystery of the cathedral the very first drawing is of an alchemist standing between the paws of the Sphinx, and underneath it says the Sphinx protects and controls the science. And um, now, of course, uh, I go into a little bit in the book, but um, I think that um, 
it'll be a very profound place to be at wow. the time. Very interesting. All right. Well, look, uh, Jay, we are about at it here. So I think we've uh, uh, done what we uh, set out to do, a wonderful, wonderful uh, explanation of your work over all these years. Thank you very much for sharing it uh, so uh, clearly and articulately with me and with, with my audience. I really, really appreciate it. It was uh, just wonderful. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity. All right, you guys, uh, that was it. Jay Widener. And uh, for any of the information on stuff that we were talking about tonight, you can always go down to his website, www.jwidener, J-A-Y-W-E-I-D-N-E-R, jwidener.com. And he will be, of course, on my archives page uh, tomorrow or the next day. I'll have this uh, entire show uh, up on the web. So anybody who wants to download it or listen to it after the fact is welcome to do that. And uh, from the archives page at my site, you can always get over to my guests' links. So that stuff will be there in perpetuity if you want to go check it out. And I urge you to because uh, uh, take it for what it's worth. Take it uh, uh, for what you will. Uh, put it into your into your combine and mix it up and see what comes out. Uh, make your own judgments, but uh, it is profound stuff and uh, really amazing stuff if you look at the connections uh, that uh, that it has come from and uh, brought together uh, in and of itself. So amazing things happening, like Jay says, just an amazing time to be alive, and uh, uh, it's astonishing that we're here in the middle of all this. So uh, look forward to. Uh, to the play as it rolls on. Okay, next week we've got um, Michael Horn. Michael Horn is sort of the North American representative of Billy Meyer, uh, the classic UFO uh, ET story from the hills of Switzerland. And we'll be talking to Michael Horn about Billy Meyer and about what uh, what's going on in those worlds these days. And uh, always uh, check us out on the web, www.radioorbit.com. Stick around. The Boogeyman will be back uh, at you in just a few minutes, and uh, we'll close things out the only way we could. This is The Doors, and this is The End. This is Mike Hagen. You've been listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN.
Just blue ball is cold.